0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me today for this Thursday edition of a live question and answer program that I host here on my YouTube channel, again, hopefully every Thursday. Last Thursday was the first time in many, many months that I was not able to make our live question and answer time. Uh, With things opening up just a bit in the midst of the global pandemic that we've experienced over the past many months, my travel schedule is starting to get filled up a little bit. And so there will be a few Thursdays here and there That I won't be able to make these times, but every time that I am able I enjoy it. I'm glad you can join me. The whole idea here is that you just write your question or your comment in the side chat window, and then I respond to that question or comment the very best I can. I certainly don't claim to have the answers about everything, but what I do know I'm happy to share, at least in that regard. You might be asking, well, who am I, and why do I think that I can come and answer questions here? Well, as I said, I certainly don't think I have the answer to every question. And since of the nature of a question and answer program like this, we get a lot of questions about things that are controversial, and that there are a variety of opinions about in the Christian world. All I can do is give you my understanding, my perspective. Uh, Some things are clear and sort of beyond controversy, or at least much controversy, and I'm happy to present those things to you. But where there is a significant divergence of opinion in the Christian world, I try to at least let you know and then give you my take on it. Um, I am a pastor and most particularly the author of a commentary on the entire Bible. And what I mean by commentary is simply this. I have uh, uh, written, I have writings, I should say, available online at EnduringWord.com and then also available at Blue Letter Bible, BLB.org. And what it does is it just seeks to explain the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. This is sort of my life's work, and unexpectedly, God led me into this work of having an online Bible commentary, and I'm very grateful that he has, because I hope that I've been able to reach and touch a lot of people and benefit a lot of people for the good of God's kingdom along those lines. So again, I certainly don't know everything, but what I do know, I'm happy to share with you. On Thursdays, we begin with a lead question. And uh, the lead question is usually something that comes in by email or by social media or by a comment on a YouTube video. And today's lead question deals with the problem of unanswered prayer. And it comes from a question from Gino. This is what Gino asks. Is it fair or is it true to say that people—and he means believers— become disobedient and turn from Jesus because of unanswered prayers, in addition uh, to the fact that the message of the cross is too difficult to follow? Well, Gino, I think that's a great question. And it's an observation asking, is it true that there are people, or at least some people, some believers, they become disobedient or they turn from Jesus— because of unanswered prayer. And, you know, I would just say, yes, this is true. Uh, I know people, and I know people both personally and anecdotally, who have turned away from Jesus. They've turned away from the faith because they earnestly desired something. They prayed for it. Perhaps they felt they had a promise from God for that thing. And uh, the prayer wasn't answered, or it hasn't been answered yet, uh, or it was something that had sort of a time limit on it, and it wasn't answered in the time. And these people have become, some of them, of course, so disillusioned, so upset from this, that they just figured, well, following God just isn't worth it. Maybe there isn't a God. He didn't answer my prayer going forth and and like that. This is a trap for some people. I remember when I was in school, I believe it was probably junior high, middle school, what they would call today. And somebody told me about communists in uh, the Soviet Union or in China uh, in the days when those countries were more tyrannically ruled. There's still, of course, the Communist Party, very strong and ruling in the nation of China. But they would tell me how Uh, they would say to a bunch of school children, all right, pray to Jesus and ask Jesus for a chocolate bar for candy. And all the students would dutifully fold their hands and, you know, close their eyes and pray. And then at the end of the prayer, they would look and there'd be no chocolate bar. And then they say, okay, now uh, we're not going to pray, but let's ask our communist leader, Stalin, Mao, whatever, let's ask him for a uh, candy or a chocolate bar. And they would ask again, maybe they wouldn't technically call it prayer, but they would ask. And then each one of the students would be given a candy or a chocolate bar. And they'd say, see, when you ask God, nothing happens. But when you ask the party or the party's leader, you get something. And again, this kind of thing can be effective. Now, in the story I just told, and I can't vouch for whether or not that story is true. You know, you just hear these stories as a child from a teacher in school. But what I want you to understand from that is that really befits the mentality of a child. Now, unanswered prayer is something that should concern us. If you pray for something and there is no answer to it, you should be concerned about that. It did concern the Apostle Paul when his prayer in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm talking about verses 7 and 9, Paul said that he prayed regarding uh, his thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three times before he received some kind of answer to God. But it, it seems from the whole context that it was disturbing to Paul that at least the first two times he prayed that he had no answer from God. Now, let me give a couple of cautions regarding this. Number one, we understand that prayer is more than asking God for things. Now, in, in this particular thing I'm talking about now, I'm talking about asking God for things. But we understand that prayer is much more of, than making requests— That's just one aspect of prayer. It just happens to be the aspect of prayer that we're talking about right now. Secondly, we have to understand what we mean and what we don't mean by unanswered prayer. We don't mean when God doesn't do everything I want Him to do. If we will get sore and offended at God because he doesn't answer our prayers yes, then it shows that we misunderstand a fundamental aspect about prayer. And it's simply this, that prayer is not about getting my will done, but it is about getting God's will done. And let's be honest. Sometimes we have a correct idea about what God's will in a situation is, and we pray for that. Sometimes we can think something is in God's will or that it's promised by him, and we can be mistaken about that. God is not like a vending machine. Where if we put in the right things, the right coins that you would put in into a vending machine, and, and you know, spiritually speaking, those are the right prayers or the right faith, then we get what we want from the vending machine. No, that's not how prayer works. And prayer is not God's invitation to us to ask whatever we want apart from his wisdom and will, and that we will receive it. It's better to understand that yes is an answer to prayer, but no is also an answer to prayer, and wait is an additional answer to prayer. Now, let's be honest. When we pray, especially if we're praying for something, yes is the answer that we want. We're not so excited about the no answer or the wait answer, but you have to admit those are answers from God. If God says no to your prayer, that's an answer. And it's an answer that the disciple of Jesus Christ should be able to accept. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this. It might be painful to accept the no answer from God. You you dreamed of a certain job, a position. You applied for that job It seemed perfect for you. It would provide for your needs. It's your dream job. You'd be working with the people that you want to. You'd be working where you want to. You just cannot perceive any reason why that wouldn't be the perfect job for you and be God's will for you. And so you pray for it. And if it turns out that God's answer to that prayer is no, I I don't expect you to be happy about that. You, You might even have a period of mourning, but what we do expect of one another as disciples is that God's no answers are accepted. We stand back and say, Lord, from everything I can see, that looked like the perfect job. And God, I can't see any reason why you would withhold that from me, but you are God. I am not I accept your will. So, no and wait are not happy answers to prayer, but they are answers nonetheless. Now, I would almost make a distinction between yes, no, wait answers to prayer and unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer is where we pray And we have no sense of an answer at all from God. No sense of a yes, no sense of a no, no sense of a wait. In a bigger sense, even though it's hard to accept, no or wait answers are fine. But the problem isn't so much no or wait answers, but prayer that is unanswered altogether. And I want you to understand something. The Bible actually gives us many reasons for unanswered prayer. And I just want to talk to you about a few of them. These are obstacles that God helping us and His Spirit working within us, we can put these obstacles out of the way as we walk in the Lord and diligently pursue Him. For example, when we are not abiding in Jesus We should not expect our prayers to be answered. This is what Jesus said in John 15, 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You see there, answered prayer is made a condition of abiding. When we're not abiding in Jesus and his words are not abiding us, it should not surprise us if our prayers are not answered. Unbelief can be a reason for unanswered prayer. Matthew chapter 17, verses 20 and 21 says this, So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you that if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You see there, Jesus put his finger on another reason for unanswered prayer. It could be unbelief. Did you know that a lack of Bible reading and Bible teaching can be a reason for unanswered prayer? This is what Proverbs 28, verse 9 says. It says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law even his prayer is an abomination. Let me say that one more time. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That could be a reason for unanswered prayer. Here's another one. Trusting in the length or the form of prayer can be a reason prayer is not answered. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Well, if you're trusting in the length or the form of your eloquence in prayer, God may say, I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to answer your prayers. A bad marriage relationship can be the reason for unanswered prayer. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. You see, if a husband, or presumably a wife towards a husband, is not dealing this way with their spouse, it can be a reason why their prayers are not answered. Failing to ask. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covenant cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered because we don't ask. And then also, I would say, selfish praying can be a reason for unanswered prayer. In James chapter 4, verse 3, we read, you, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, right there, I've just given, I don't know, six, seven, eight reasons for unanswered prayer. The Bible actually gives us many more reasons. And, and, and we'll put these in the comments afterwards or in the, uh, the um, description of the video. Um, disobedience, not praying in God's will, a failure to fast, unconfessed sin, cold, passionless prayers, prayerlessness, or a lack of persistence in prayer, sin against others, a lack of unity, not listening to God, not praying in the name of Jesus, pride, lying and deceitfulness. All of these things are specifically mentioned in the scriptures as potential reasons for unanswered prayer. So this is just what I would say. If your prayers aren't answered, the first thing you need to do is make sure your heart is right and you understand the purpose of prayer, not fundamentally to impose my will upon God, but to receive and understand and to put into action God's will in this world. That's the first thing to understand. Second thing to understand. If prayer is unanswered, it might be a signal that something is wrong in your Christian life, that something is wrong in your walk with God. Now, I don't say that to bring condemnation on anybody. This is actually a gift from God. It can be a warning sign. Hey, there's something you need to give attention to. And I would just make a request to you: take a look at the list that we're going to put in the video description. Look at those things and just ask God to speak to your heart. Is one of these particular things the reason why my prayers are not being answered? Then don't make excuses about it. Confess your sin and then go and walk forward confident in Jesus Christ. So Gino, thanks for that question. Uh, It is true that unanswered prayer is said to be a reason why People depart from the faith or turn their back on Jesus, but let me tell you, it doesn't have to be. There is a sense in which unanswered prayer can be a gift. Sometimes, because God didn't give us what we asked for because he knows so much better than us, that's always true. But then also, unanswered prayer can be a gift in that it can alert us to something that needs to get right in our walk with God. All right, enough with that. Let me go to the questions here in the side chat and take a look at what we have. First of all, Tyler asks a question. How can you know if you are idolizing theology over Jesus himself? Well, Tyler, I would say that simply this would be a matter of being more interested in theological ideas than in Jesus and your life with Jesus in and of itself. We need to, in our walk with God, enjoy a sense of fellowship, a sense of communion with Jesus, uh, just regularly, daily. And if our interest in theology is more on the theoretical, more on the abstract, and it's not really having an active concern With a life with Jesus Christ, this can be an indication of the fact that theology is becoming an idol for us. Of course, that's what happened to the religious leaders, or at least many of them, in the days of Jesus. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, oh, there were many things they loved about theology, but they most definitely, many of them, did not love Jesus. They didn't even really love God. Because Jesus is and was the perfect representation of God the Father, and they rejected Jesus, showing that they were really rejecting God the Father. I would also look to one other warning sign, and it's this. If you take an undue delight in winning theological arguments, there's something a bit twisted out in the Christian world today. And it's simply this, when people take what I would describe an undue delight in owning that person with whom you theologically uh, disagree, I should say, you uh, mock them a bit, you uh, characterize them in a wrong way. And what you're really interested in is winning an argument not representing the truth and perhaps teaching the truth. So we, we need to be aware of this. We need to be on guard with it. Thank you, Tyler, for that question. Let me move on to Jose. He asked this question First Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1 talks about apostasy. Can you please explain who is an apostate? And can you give an example of a doctrine of demons or deceiving spirits? Well, Jose, that's a great question. Um, What is apostasy? Well, the idea, as I understand it, behind the basic Greek word that's translated apostate or apostasy is simply that of a departure. An apostate is someone who has departed from the fundamentals of the Christian faith, departed from the gospel, of course, but then also those other things that are fundamentals of the Christian faith. Sometimes it's hard to come down with an exact list or definition of what are these fundamentals. A good starting place—I'm not going to say that this is the only place you can look—but a good starting place for the fundamentals of the Christian faith is found in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, You can look that up on your own. Just Google Apostles' Creed, and you'll find it. Those, I think, give a very helpful summary of what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Now, as far as an example of a doctrine of demons or deceiving spirits, um, he talks about it here in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, where he says, Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. There, he's talking about legalistic excesses, ways that people thought that they could be holier than God requests or commands in any way. So legalistic things can be doctrines of demons or deceiving spirits. But I would say, especially connecting this with some verses in 1 John, where he talks about the spirit of Antichrist and confessing Jesus as Lord. Teachings that take us away from the biblical Jesus, The Jesus who is fully God and fully man, the Jesus who really died a substitutionary death for our sins on the cross, the Jesus who really rose again, the things that take us away from that Jesus, I would say also definitely belong in the category of the doctrines of demons and that of deceiving spirits. So that's what comes to my mind off the top of my head, Jose. I'm sure we could go on longer and talk about other things perhaps, but let's just begin with that. Things that are legalistic in their character, things that seek to establish my relationship with God based on my performance, not upon what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, and uh, these things that we talk about regarding um, denial of the biblical Jesus. Okay, let me move on here. Elisa says, or Elsa, excuse me, says, I really appreciate your commentaries. have been very helpful. And well, Elsa, I'm very pleased to hear that. And again, I don't know who tunes in and when and why, but just simply to say this, that I do have a written commentary on the entire Bible that you can find at EnduringWord.com. Uh, you can also find it at Blue Letter Bible, uh, BLB.org. A Blue Letter Bible is a marvelous Bible resource that has incredible Greek and Hebrew original language tools, as well as a lot of Bible commentators, uh, not just my own commentator. Uh, Come says, Can you explain the war in heaven? It's written in Revelation 12. What does it mean? I understand it's not literal, so that y- can you give the correct meaning of the text? Well, come, I think that's very interesting that what you say about this war in heaven as it's described in Revelation chapter 12, uh, I'll just read to you a little bit about it verse 1 where it says, "Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and then moving down throughout the uh, thing, it talks about verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Fascinating here. We have the dragon whom the book of Revelation tells us very clearly in the book of Revelation. This is a representation of Satan himself to us. Satan has, and his angels, that's what it says there in verse 7, fight a battle against Michael and his angels. And, you know, it's very interesting. What is this war? Well, we don't know. I would not immediately suppose that it has no material aspect to it. Now, perhaps it's true that angels or angelic beings don't normally have a material body, but certainly they can assume, under certain circumstances, a material body. So, I would say that definitely we know that there's a spiritual aspect to this battle, and for all we know, there may also be a material aspect of it. The important thing to know from Revelation chapter 12 is that Satan never wins in this warfare against God and against his representatives, uh, Michael, and his angels. The other thing to notice is this. God, as it were, does not fight this battle with Satan directly, but through his angels. That is because the opposite of Satan and his angels is not God. The opposite of Satan and his angels is Michael, the archangel, and his angels. God has no opposite. So this is an angelic battle. And just as you say, we don't know exactly what form it takes, but it is a real battle, and it is a battle that Satan loses. Now, I believe that the battle that's described in Revelation chapter 12, starting at verse 7, is something that has yet to happen in God's plan of the ages. It's not hard to find people who disagree with me on that. There's all sorts of different opinions. But the battle that is fought between God and his representatives and Satan and his representatives is real, and it's current in the present day. And the main way we fight this battle is through prayer. If you take a close look at the Ephesians chapter 6 spiritual warfare section, you will see that the fundamental way that the battle is fought in spiritual warfare is in and through prayer. So anyway, that's a great question. Uh, I hope I've been able to shed at least a little bit of light, but some of the aspects that you asked, we, we honestly, we just don't know the full extent of this. Okay, broken is asking, Greetings, Pastor David. Regarding 1 Kings, how did Elijah know God would respond with fire when confronting the prophets of Baal? Uh, Can we have the same confidence in God moving like that today? Okay. I believe uh, this is 1 Kings chapter 17, isn't it? I'm just doing that from memory. Uh, Broken, I think there's something very interesting in there. When the prophet Elijah suggests this conflict with the prophets of Baal and he lets the prophets of Baal ask their imaginary God to send down fire from heaven and nothing happens. Afterwards, when Elijah gets ready to pray, of course, he commands them to soak down the sacrifice with water, to make a trench around the altar with water and fill it with water, I should say, the trench. After he does all that, he prays. And the opening words of Elijah's prayer go something like this. You can look it up for yourself. He says, Lord, you know that I have done all these things according to your word. I think that's a very important idea. Elijah did not come up with this strategy of challenging the prophets of Baal in a strategy session with a bunch of other prophets. He wasn't brainstorming. It wasn't just a thought that occurred to him. Somehow, in some way, God brought his word to the prophet and told him to do this. So really, that's the answer to your question. That's how Elijah knew that God would respond with fire, because God told him to do the whole thing. And presumably, God told him that I will respond with fire, Elijah, when you pray. So don't miss that little phrase. It's just a little phrase in the prayer that Elijah prays, but it is an important phrase. Okay, let me go on. Luis says, What is your take on using holy water, burning incense, and using cloths to give people to be healed? Well, um, holy water, the idea of it, has no real New Testament precedence. In the Old Testament, there was a laver, a receptacle of water that worshipers would use at the temple or at the tabernacle. They wouldn't use them in their individual meeting places in the communities or what later became synagogues. We find no repetition of this in the New Testament. Holy water seems to me to be an element of superstition. Now, is it possible that somebody takes the custom of holy water and crossing themselves with it? And they use it in a way that avoids the superstition. And it is actually a demonstration of faith and trust in God for the perfect cleansing that comes to us, not through the application of water or the sign of the cross, but by a living and active faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, that's possible. But you got to say a very small percentage of those who dip their fingers in holy water and make a sign of the cross are doing it in true faith. Most all of them do it in mere superstition. That's one aspect. Uh, The other aspect that you talk about of incense, again, no real New Testament basis for this. Incense was part of the Old Testament ceremonies, um, using claws to get people to be healed. There is an example of a strange or remarkable miracle in the book of Acts that was wrought in this way but it's really not presented in any way that give us a pattern. I think it's wise to avoid such superstitions and to regard such superstitions as an evidence of a weak faith. I will not say that they are necessarily used for idolatry, although they certainly can be and often are, but even if they're used in the best way, it's a demonstration of weak faith, not the kind of faith I believe God would have us walk in. So that's really my take, Luis. Um I I tend to be against such things. Uh Pure Fire of God says, always start any prayers with giving thanks. Yes, indeed. That's always. As I said before in our opening comments, I don't want to act for a moment that making requests is the only aspect of prayer. It just happened to be the one that we were talking about today. Um, continue on. Sekiro says, uh, What is your understanding of women being pastors? Sekiro, so I would say that the biblical norm is for women to not be pastors. I have an extensive teaching on this uh, in my series through the book of 1 Timothy. I believe it's the third um, teaching in that series, but you you'll find it pretty easily if you just look around the YouTube channel and look for that. Maybe we can put the link in the description of this video. I would say, normally speaking, I could hypothetically think of a situation where, though it is not ideal or what God would command to have a woman pastor, it would be nevertheless the best in a particular situation. What I mean by that is you imagine some circumstance, all oh right, um, hypothetical situation. A husband and wife uh, are missionaries off in the, you know, unreached peoples and they meet a tribal group and uh, they're ministering and establish a church, a congregation there. Yet the congregation is young and there's really no maturity or biblical education. And then suddenly the husband up and dies. Can the wife take a pastoral position? yes again is this ideal no it's not what the bible prescribes but but i believe that there are situations regarding biblical leadership and ministry where when the ideal is impossible you do what you can and work towards the ideal so that's why i say normally i think god would say women should not be pastors in that sense of leading, governing congregations, and especially being the doctrinal voice of preaching and teaching for a congregation. Now, a very logical question that somebody may respond with is, well, David, then do you condemn women pastors? Do you say that they're in sin and should, you know, repent? Look, I believe the Bible teaches what it teaches about women in governing and doctrinal authority in the church. Again, you can go to the video that I did in First Timothy for more on that. I believe that it is not best for the church ever to disobey what God commands in these areas. It's not good. It's not good for the church. While there may be and seem to be a short-term good from having the gifts and talents of a you know a, I don't know what you'd say a a, a, a charismatic or a winsome woman uh, in a pastoral position like that. I think that the ultimate effect is always a negative because it's outside of God's norm for the church. So um, I'm not going to pass condemnation upon a woman pastor, but I would say this, I think that you're misguided, and I think that what you're doing is, in the long term, not a blessing or a benefit for the church. Um, and then, you know what, then I'd leave it up between them and God, um, because it really is. I don't, I don't lose sleep over this. Um, I do stand strong for the doctrine as I believe it. But ultimately it is between that individual and God and they will be accountable before God for what they have done or haven't done. So, uh, Sakira, I hope that helps you. And uh, let me move on to the next question. Come again, says, do you believe America will be destroyed? Well, come, that's an interesting question. I-, I guess I could answer it. And he says, well, yes, eventually. I, I mean, America is not the eternal nation. Eventually, America will be destroyed, even if it's the ultimate demonstration of Jesus Christ and what he does in ending this present age. So, America is not the eternal kingdom. Yes, eventually it will be destroyed. Now, prophetically speaking, there are people who claim, and I suppose I would number myself among them, that say America is not mentioned or featured in biblical prophecy. No. There's disagreement among that. Some people say, no, here you can see America, there you can see America. I would say, largely speaking, America is not spoken of in biblical prophecy. And there are some people who think that is because America will cease to be a world power when the very end times happen. I'll hold that out as a possibility, but in the bigger picture, I would just say, That biblical prophecy doesn't tell us everything about the end times, uh, but it tells us what we need to know. So, no, I don't find um, America in biblical prophecy. Whether or not America will be destroyed, eventually. Eventually. I, I just can't say when. Levy says, can Christians play Harry Potter games? Levi, I would say this, and I know that this answer may not be pleasing to some people, but I'll give it nevertheless. I believe that this is up to an individual's conscience before the Lord. I know that there are some people who say, no, Harry Potter, this is a matter of magic and conjuring and black arts that, either are or border on the demonic. A Christian should have nothing to do with There are Christians who are of that conviction, and I won't try to persuade them otherwise. But I will say this, that I do believe that there is a place for fiction, for fantasy, so to speak. Uh, can it be abused? Yes. But I do think that there is a place for, again, fiction and fantasy. I would just simply say, challenge each individual believer, prayerfully take your involvement in such a thing like that before the Lord, and ask God sincerely with an open heart if this is something that He would allow or prohibit you to do. And if God says that He would allow it, then... Keep asking him from time to time, because maybe God's will in the particular area like that might change. So, I I can't give a categorical answer uh, for that, at least in my own conscience. I would simply say that this is an area where each believer must be persuaded for themselves. Again, I hope that's helpful for you. Continuing on, um, Jose says, In non-essential doctrines where there are different postures, should I say this is the posture I believe in or stay away from that and explain the different postures there are on the subject? Jose, I have no problem when there are controversial things. And I get asked a lot of controversial questions. Uh, The Harry Potter questions, things about biblical prophecy, things about church government, things about spiritual gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit. All these things are controversial things. And I recognize that there are believers who really love Jesus who have a different perspective. That's okay. But what I really do want to highlight though is uh, there are times when I teach these things And I just teach what I believe while maybe giving a moment's acknowledgement that there are other viewpoints on this. There are other times when I teach when I try to represent the different viewpoints and I try to do it fairly because it really doesn't honor God when we lie about other perspectives. So I would just say you need to be open to the Holy Spirit to this It's okay to just present your perspective. We we don't have to explain every conceivable alternative explanation to every passage or issue that we might teach on before God's people. Um, But at the same time, it is helpful to acknowledge that there are different opinions. Um, Although sometimes it is good to say, okay, well, this group sees it this way and this group sees it the other way, as long as you can represent those things fairly. I think we just have to be led by the Holy Spirit in these things. Let me continue on. Uh, Come, I'm going to put your question on hold and go down later because I just kind of want to give a little preference to those who have not had any questions uh, addressed so far. Um, Joel says, hi, reading Exodus, and it says that the Lord will kill those who didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Then later it says the destroyer would kill the firstborn. What is your take on that? Joel, I I really believe that when it's talking about uh, killing those who don't have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, it's just talking about bringing death, the firstborn among those people. God will bring death among those people. I, I don't think the idea is that God would kill every person in a family if they didn't have the blood on the sides and tops of their doorpost. Uh, Again, that doesn't seem to be what God did throughout Egypt. And even if there were some Israelites who didn't apply the blood as God recommended or commanded, actually. So I I really think it is just a matter of the death that is spoken about. There is the death of the firstborn in each family. Continuing on, uh, Donald says, I've heard it said, if you do not forget forgive, you have not forgiven. So how can—okay, no, let me read this again. I misinterpreted that. I've heard it said that if you do not forget, you have not forgiven. So how can we forget when we have been treated wrong? Donald, I, I want to say that I think I would disagree with that definition of forgiveness. I don't believe that forgiveness means that I forget a wrong that has been done to me. Now, I remember it, but I no longer remember it in the category of offenses that anger me and make me want to, you know, bring retribution, I remember it, but I remember it in a new box. And that box is things I have forgiven. No, we can remember the wrong that has been done to us and still forgive others those wrong. The classic example of this is Joseph when he forgave his brothers. He said, You meant it for evil. He remembered what they did, and he acknowledged. He acknowledged not only their evil, but their evil intent in doing it. You meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Joseph did not forget what his brothers did to him. He just understood it in a larger context of God's great plan. So, really, I don't think that forgetting is a requirement of forgiveness. It's really just a matter of remembering in the right way. Hope that helps you. Uh, Continuing on, West says, Hi, Pastor. I don't understand the big conversation about baptism The baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I've seen and heard those are titles. Well, West, again, I'm not going to look it up right now, but at the end of one of the Gospels, it mentions baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are some Christians who make a big deal about that, saying that that a baptism is only valid if it is done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, There are other Christians who say, no, baptism is only valid if it's done in the name of Jesus. I'm kind of with you, West. I don't quite understand the controversy around this, but I do know that it exists. And I do know that there are Christians of strong and varying opinions regarding this. So really, um, it's just people, I think, putting too much reliance in a particular baptismal formula the power and the effectiveness of baptism does not lie in the formula, the exact words that are said when a person is baptized, nor does it lie in the um, particular ceremony itself, even though I am a believer in baptism by immersion wherever possible, because that's kind of what baptism is. It's immersion, not sprinkling. Um, But the power is really in the reality of the spiritual truths that baptism illustrates in the life of the person being baptized. Baptism is a material illustration of a spiritual truth, for example, of the washing of my sins. If the spiritual reality is not there, then the ceremony is of little good. Baptism is an illustration of my identification with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. If that spiritual reality is not true, then it's just a dipping into water. It's just swimming, if you want to say that. So the power in baptism is shown in that it truly communicates a real work of God's spirit within a person, and I would say the power of baptism is in its obedience. Make no mistake about it. Jesus commanded his followers to be baptized. And if you want to be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, you need to get baptized. Okay, let me continue on here. Olewatore, I'm... Excuse me, I have a feeling I'm pronouncing that wrong, but forgive me. It says, Hello, Pastor David. God bless you for all you're doing. How can a person practically stop thinking negatively about people and God? Well, I would say that the best way to stop thinking negatively about people and God is to fill your heart and mind with the scriptures. This is a place where I believe scripture memorization can be of immense help. So that's really what I would recommend. Begin an aggressive campaign of scripture memorization. Let your heart and mind be filled with good things, the Word of God. And you'll see that it may happen slowly, but I believe it will happen surely that uh, your mind will be set more upon the things of God, not thinking negatively about other people and about God himself. Luciana says, Hi, Pastor. Don't skip another Thursday. We missed you. Uh, Jokes aside, how old were you when you became a pastor? Was preaching something that you've always wanted to do? Thanks. Okay, Luciana, um, I had an unusual beginning in my life in ministry. I started teaching a home Bible study to adults when I was only 16 years old. So that was the start. And I can say that pretty much ever since I've been 16 years old, I've been teaching the Bible week in and week out. Um, that's just how it's been for me over the past uh, 30 plus years, uh, 40 plus years, excuse me. Um, so, over the past 40 or more years, I've been regularly teaching the Bible ever since I was 16 years old. However, if you want to give a starting place to my pastoral ministry, a dear friend of mine, uh, to this day, he is a dear friend and partner in ministry. He's a pastor named Lance Ralston, the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Oxnard, California. Uh, Look him up. He's a marvelous preacher and teacher, Uh, a great pastor for his congregation as well. Uh, Lance Ralston and myself, we started Calvary Chapel of Oxnard, and we had our first Sunday service uh, while I was 19 years old. That was just about a month before I was going to turn 20. But you could say that I've been involved in pastoral ministry since my late teens, since I was 19. And um, that was just the road that God appointed for me in my earliest Christian years. And when I'm talking about that, before I started teaching the Bible law, I didn't have some great aspiration to ministry. I didn't think, oh my, I want to be a preacher. But once... I was given the opportunity, and once I started preaching and teaching God's Word, uh, it wasn't too long after that that I really felt a discernible call on my life, and I enjoyed doing it so much. So, the the call didn't come before I really started doing it, which is, I think, a familiar pattern for many people. Look, if you think you're called to ministry— Find a way to do some ministry and see what God does with it. I think that's a great general way to approach these things. Okay, uh, Mr. Ard BZ says, "Hey David, it was great to see you at the stake and study and ride with you in your 65. Praying for you in your ministry. Well, wonderful, great to see you again, and thank you. I'm glad you could join me. Uh, that was a great time last. Th- that's what I was doing last Thursday. I was out." in a community called Yucca Valley at Joshua Springs Calvary Chapel doing a teaching for their men that Thursday night and then teaching at Calvary Bible Institute last Friday during the day. Um, Let me go down to a question by Mike. I'm skipping over some questions from people who have asked questions before. Mike says, it's a real treat to be able to catch this live. Usually I have to watch it afterwards. Thank you for doing this, David. Mike, God bless you. Thank you. Mike is a pastor of Calvary Cork a wonderful church in Cork, Ireland, and a dear friend over many years. By the way, this particular Saturday, Mike and a few other guys are hosting a special online edition of something called the Expositors Collective. So if you're listening to this before this coming Saturday, uh, September 19th or so, I suppose it is, uh, you can sign up for that. Go to expositorscollective.com, search for that. And uh, it's a very valuable teaching and training tool for those who want to learn how to teach and preach better. So God bless you, Mike. It's great to hear from you. Uh, Another one from Anne here says, I love the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I know He is my great shepherd and friend. I also know He is holy Can you speak about recognizing the holiness of God without entering legalism? Well, Anne, God bless you for this really wonderful question. I think that the holiness of God is a very neglected aspect of God's nature, of God's character. We don't think much about the holiness of God and we don't rejoice much in the holiness of God. But God is holy. And what that fundamentally means is that He is different than us. He is apart from us. We make a great error when we think that God is just a super man. In other words, that He is just superhuman. God is not human. Although, let's remember, Jesus Christ added unfallen humanity to his deity. But even so, that shows that there's a distinction between humanity and deity. God is God. He is holy. He is set apart. And holiness is not just another characteristic of God. It's essential to his very nature. God is love, and His love is a holy love. God has great power, and His power is a holy power. God is wise, and His wisdom is a holy wisdom. You see, it's an aspect of what God is in His entire being. This is who God is. Now, how can we recognize and appreciate the holiness of God without becoming legalistic? The important thing about legalism, and to avoid legalism, is simply this. We need to recognize that our standing with God, what God thinks about us, is not based on what we do for God, but it's based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If we will keep that very strong and secure in our minds, my status, my standing, my position with God, what God thinks of me is not fundamentally based on what I do for him, but on what he has done for me. That is the great guardrail for avoiding legalism. When we start thinking that fundamentally speaking, God's opinion of us is based on what we do for him, that distorts all of our thinking, and we can't help but fall in the error of legalism. So, Anne, that's the best way I would answer that. Well, I look at the clock here, and we're coming up to an hour. I apologize that I have left some questions unanswered. Some of you have asked more than one question. Uh, Again, no problem with you asking more than one question, but uh, I'm going to try to get to the first questions that other people have before I get to the second questions that some people ask. Maybe that'll help you ask your best question first. Uh, And so I know I'm leaving some second and third questions unanswered, and I'm leaving some first questions unanswered. Uh, But listen, folks, I'm so glad that you could join me today. We copy down these questions that we didn't get to, and maybe later on a pre-recorded version of the question and answer, I can deal with many of these questions. But I'm so pleased that you could join me today. Thank you for joining me. Um, I do want to say one thing uh, right before I go. Please don't miss this. We have just uploaded on the YouTube channel another set of teachings from the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. This is a week of meetings with Dr. Orr, and it encompasses eight messages that he preached of a week of meetings at the First Baptist Church at Garland, Texas, in 1984, I believe. J. Edwin Orr was a remarkable man of God, and I love sharing his content. He described this series of messages to his daughter who gave me these videos. She told me that he described these videos as this is my ministry in a nutshell. And it's a marvelous collection of videos. Now, when I posted these to the YouTube channel, I did not ping our subscribers with that uh, because I put them up all at once and I didn't want people's notifications going crazy. But they're up there. Take a look at the playlist, A Week of Meetings with Dr. J. Edwin Orr. I think you'll like those videos, and I've got a few more J. Edwin Orr videos that I'll put up in coming weeks, but I think you'll enjoy it. Look, uh, subscribe to this channel, hit the like button. I appreciate it every time you do, and thank you for joining me. Uh, God willing, and if we live, I will see you next Thursday again for another live question and answer. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.